0: of the meeting of the american academy of religion for 2013 which is the public understanding of religion and issues of religious pluralism this panel was um, put together by my predecessor um, john esposito who perhaps as you know has done um, remarkably well and has a remarkable commitment to making sure the arguments um, about islam and uh, uh, around islam and from the islamic tradition are brought into the public square and has brought our attention to the need for a wide collaborative discourse in the public arena. He had an emergency, and I'm filling in for him, so please forgive me any lapses. I'm someone who cares deeply about making sure that the arguments of my tradition, Judaism, are brought into the public arena as legitimate sources for persuasive argumentative discourse. And I welcome other arguments from religious traditions in the public arena aware, knowing full well of the dangers and risks of such an enterprise. Before you, have three scholars who have done that with remarkable skill over a long period of time. They are experts with long and impressive bibliographies um, and biographies that you will find in your program book. So Sean Casey, who represents us to the United States government, um, working now for the Department of State and for for John Kerry um, in his heroic efforts to bring world peace. Ingrid Mattson, who is uh, a Canadian, graciously coming to the United States, um, and who is the um, London and Windsor Community Chair of Islamic Studies in Huron University at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. And Yosef Soret from Columbia University, an assistant professor of religion and African American studies there. All three of them are going to tell you why it is they do what they do and how they came to be in the positions that they hold. So please proceed, Yosef.
1: Well, we're going in reverse alphabetical reverse order. Alphabet. All <laughs> good
0: Zola. My name is Zola. <laughs> yeah. So I deeply about the energy of the.
1: Alphabet. Absolutely, I appreciate it. Well afternoon as we're right on the cusp of the noon hour um, Thank you Lori uh, for the introduction I want to thank John for the invitation and uh, my fellow panelists uh, I look forward to the conversation and um, with Eb and with you all so um, my re- remarks will be somewhat autobiographical without overly hopefully being overly self-indulgent um, and so in that regard, What I would, uh, beginning somewhat actually at the process of entering the academy and having a few years, just a few years of prior work experience in a variety of nonprofit and faith-based settings, I entered the PhD program somewhat naively, I would admit, uh, with the hope that the work that I was being trained to do would be, uh, in part, being able to leverage the resources of the academy in service to a variety of communities that I maintained uh, commitments to, like we all do, as not singularly occupying the academy, but being uh, participants and belonging to multiple communities. Um, But very quickly, uh, I learned, and I hope that I'm not constructing a straw man, um, and this perhaps reflects uh, my location on on this committee as the untenured. um, And the particular institution that I uh, belong to uh, encountered uh, a stigma of uh, attached to the public work. So uh, I, I believe it's not simply a strong man, but uh, the sense that somehow when one engages the public, it is somehow to inherently compromise our work and that somehow scholarship and activism or public engagement or whatever rubric we attach to it exist as mutually exclusive worlds. So negotiating uh, that space, despite a number of prominent academics who I deeply respect, uh, created somewhat of, a, if not schizophrenic, a sort of existential tension between those communities that I valued and wanted to remain in conversation within the work uh, that I hoped to do in the academy and was increasingly enthralled in as I was tra- being training in both religious studies and African American studies. Um, And so somehow throughout that time, while also being trained, remaining in conversation as a researcher primarily in service to a variety of nonprofits and faith-based organizations throughout grad school, somewhere around the time I finished up, I guess by virtue of being in the right or wrong place at the right or wrong time, um, was presented with a unique opportunity in which my research interests somehow coalesced with, Uh, some of the current questions that were at the front of American public debates. And if you all recall in uh, California in 2008, at the same time we were uh, passing Proposition 8 in California uh, or California was passing Proposition 8 um, in particular, (laughs) myself being from Boston and in New York. Um, there was a particular narrative that emerged around black churches and how somehow black churches were scapegoated as the cause for the passage of this legislation. It's a familiar narrative that has taken on many stories, gay versus black and what have you. Um, And so I was presented with a fortunate opportunity to do some research. Um, in service to an organization to challenge that narrative and actually engage in some empirical conversation with uh, members of black churches in the communities they claim to serve around how questions of sexuality are uh, negotiated and thought through. And would you know it as academics are fond of saying, it's a little bit more complicated than that gay versus (laughs) black paradigm, right? Um, We're not strangers to this narrative. And so um, I think what I was challenged to do on the tenure track is to begin to look for increasingly opportunities where things that uh, were salient in the public I were also uh, shaping the way in which uh, my field and my formation as a scholar of African American and American religious history was taking shape and have remained a part of these conversations um and had the opportunity to bring together and learn from a wonderful group of african-american religious leaders scholars and activists um in thinking through how to make an empirical claim about what's going on in black communities right so scholarship on one hand but then also provide a platform based on those that empirical claims that can challenge churches black churches in particular but i Constellation of Christian and religious institutions more broadly in the American uh, scene that play a significant role in shaping our moral landscape, um, and I'm excited as we're at a new stage of this work at Columbia in launching a new project in a new center that will hope to continue to advance research and education, um, research education and public engagement that capitalizes and foregrounds the way in which uh, sexual politics is both front and center in the contemporary American landscape and also often a site that is at the margins of African American studies and African American religious studies in particular. So I will stop there and look forward to the
2: conversation. Uh, Pardon me, I'm suffering from a Baltimore-induced cold. uh, I... Yes, yeah, exactly, I apologize for that. Maybe you wanna move back a couple of rows. Um, uh, well, I, I wanna uh, <laughs> uh, say thanks to, to my panelists here and, and to John for this opportunity. I, I also am gonna be briefly autobiographical and try to get at three questions. Why do I do public engagement as a religious scholar? Why do I think it's important? And what kind of crazy things am I up to now that I've temporarily stepped out of the guild into the world of government bureaucracy? Uh, I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2000 to join the faculty of Wesley Theological Seminary. And if you can think that far back in the midst of time, uh, there was an election. Soon thereafter, there was a war. And while it was not good for the country, it was good for my career. And I hate saying that. But given my, my research areas in the ethics of war and peace, religion and presidential politics, and religion and foreign policy, suddenly, like, like you, Yosef, I found myself uh, in the right place at the right time, uh, where issues I cared about deeply were being bandied about in what I thought were just extraordinarily dangerous and irresponsible ways, and yet I was the snot-nosed associate assistant professor from nowhere uh, who suddenly was yelling and screaming, and it took a while before anybody noticed my yelling and screaming, but uh, through, through, again, sort of dumb luck and being in the right place at the right time, uh, as E.J. Dion once said, Democrats discovered God in the exit polls of the 2004 election. Uh, and luckily I was there at, at the moment. The Democrats began to, to rethink their, uh, their relationships w- with faith groups and in electoral politics. Um, so also, and, and, and Joseph, you raise an extraordinarily important point. The administration at, at Wesley Seminary told me when I walked through the door, public engagement would count mm. in the tenure process. And they said, as long as they don't misspell the name of our seminary when they quote you, it will count when we get to that day of reckoning for 10 years. So I was liberated by my institution literally from day one. To me, this, this is the biggest issue we face as a guild is how do you convince provosts and deans and associate deans and associate associate deans and associate associate associate, associate deans uh, who seem to be proliferating and department chairs how this work is important to the scholarly life and it ought to count not against you but for you. And, and so that's one of the deep questions that we have to wrestle with as a guild is how do we model that? How do we write that into our, our rank and tenure and promotion a criteria such that you don't have to suffer wondering, are they going to think I'm a piker, I'm a journalist, or what, whatever uh, insulting term you want to instead of a real scholar? So I was actually, uh, my scholarly career was born in, in just absolutely the perfect academic environment. And for that, I'll be thankful every day. Uh, now in in terms of why I think it's important the crass pragmatic answer is because if we don't do it people will die literally die now I don't want to I don't want to get amped up on that okay and my, my, my students roll the eyes when Sean starts preaching so I 'm going to resist that urge but that's that's the crass answer people will die if we don't understand the Increasing complexity of religious diversity, not only in this country, but on this planet. And we have 10, 12, 13 years of empirical evidence very close at hand. Now, there are a lot of other reasons, too. But, but that, that is, I, I was, uh, my, my son turned 19 in 2007, which, if again, if you think back that far, was not a very good year. And it was not a good year to be a tall, strapping, white kid with a short haircut who went to the mall. Because he, he couldn't go to the mall without, without being multiply assaulted by military recruiters saying, hey, how would you like to join the Marines? So, okay, I promised they wouldn't preach. I'm going to stop. Um, so it's an inc- incredibly important work. Now, <clears throat> I have taken this interregnum in the Department of State, and I didn't start my stopwatch, so I apologize for that. Let me simply say the Department of State, much to my pleasure, does a vast array of religious engagement that most of us don't know about, I frankly didn't know about until I got there. But we have a lot of bureaus that provide aid in a humanitarian basis, development basis, and faith-based groups deliver a high percentage of those uh, federal tax dollars through USAID. We have a bureau called Population Migration in Refugees, which this year will resettle for the first time in over a decade 70,000 refugees in this country. We, have, we will reach our, our legal limit for the first time since 9-11. And six out of the nine agencies we partner with for that first 90-day resettlement are faith-based groups. So we we partner and engage with religious groups there. Um, We have a new bureau, the Conflict of Stabilization Operations, which is looking at non-lethal ways to stabilize conflict-prone areas, and they engage deeply with religious actors in some of the most vexing places around the world. Uh, We have a special envoy to combat anti-Semitism, we have a special envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, we have a special representative to the Muslim world. So already, and this is in addition to the International Religious Freedom Office, so already the Department of State does a a wide variety of religious engagement. We need to get better at it, and there's room for improvement. And a lot of the work I'm doing is going to be trying to at least marginally improve the the quality and sophistication of that engagement. And part of that's going to be, leveraging the expertise that's in this room because no single person is the smartest person on religion and global politics because it's too complicated for one person to to even begin to pretend to to, uh, master. Let me close by telling you the three main missions I have as the special advisor to Secretary Kerry for faith-based community initiatives. Let me begin by saying the lawyers wrote that title. Uh, That's not the label I would have chosen, but we defer to the lawyers inside the federal government. I have three jobs. The first one is to advise Secretary Kerry when he needs more information as religion cuts across the issues that he deals with. If you read the Washington Post, the New York Times front pages, religion cuts across every issue that Secretary Kerry is dealing with. Uh, again, I'm not the smartest guy, but I like to say I'm three phone calls away from every member of the AAR. Uh, I have a network. I, I reach out. I'm trying to leverage your expertise to get us smarter uh, in the hard work that he's doing. Uh, the second task is to build capacity for religious engagement in the State Department. As I've tried to show you very quickly, we do a lot of it. It tends to be ad hoc. It tends to be personality driven. It, it, it tends not to be driven by strategy. Uh, and we have an internal college, the Foreign Service Institute, which does a lot of training. So I hope to be partnering with them after we've done some introspection about what works well and what doesn't work well, to begin to train and change the DNA in the bureaucracy so when three years from now, my clock goes off and I turn into a pumpkin and come back to your guild, uh, we'll leave behind a a different culture where the DNA has been perhaps moved in in good directions. And the third piece is to be the external connector to potential shareholders and stakeholders who wanna come and learn what we do. Uh, In four months on the job, I have met with over 300 religious leaders and religious groups. I'm tired when I just mouth those words. There's a tremendous amount of pent-up demand, both domestically and internationally, to come and learn how these groups can partner or learn what we're doing in their space. Uh, I I thought at first that level would level off quickly and then taper off, and the fact is, people are now coming back with letters and requests. uh, And and I think that volume, frankly, is going to increase. So the the response has been profound on the part of of a vast array of global religious groups who want to help us get better. And want to tell us what they do and seek ways for synergy. So those are the three missions that I have, uh, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to keeping doing that.
3: When I was looking for a uh, graduate school for uh, Islamic studies in the late '80s, um, there was there were only area studies, uh, Middle East studies, Oriental studies. Um, departments that taught anything on Islam. Uh, So most of us at that time would go to MESA, Middle East Studies Association, not the American Academy of Religion. Uh, Divinity schools, departments of religion, faculties of theology, at that time, were not generally teaching uh, Islam. So my education was really in this old Orientalist tradition um, I was not trained to be a public speaker, in other words. I mean, we didn't even have preaching courses. Uh, I never had to teach a class uh, to, gra- to graduate. Um, and But I always, my interest was always uh, the Muslim community, the formation of the Muslim community, um, how, our, how our communities engage with other religious communities. So I... I always um, was available to my own community um, to try to bring what I was learning to, um, you know, to the level of the congregation or some or a woman's group or, uh, so I think that throughout my uh, graduate education allowed me to maintain some, um, a way to articulate religious concepts in a non-jargonistic way. Not completely, I mean, you're really, Really, pretty pretty much, you know, closeted in, in the library, in the doctoral program. But it was pretty good. Then, when I uh, I got a position at Hartford Seminary again, I wasn't trained in a seminary environment or for that. I realized with a shock that um, that there was a gap, and I had to start learning even more how to articulate uh, the uh, wisdom of my tradition, Islamic ethics and theology. In a broader way, and in a context that religion, where religion was taken seriously, was not just a dead, you know, object to be uh, um, uh, have an autopsy performed on. Um, so I was able to actually engage religious language, but you, but in an academic environment. So what I'm really interested in, I think, would be most helpful sharing with you is how does our education Contribute or inhibit the ability to engage in the public sphere. So this was all all fine until, um, as someone who was active in the Muslim community, I was elected vice president of the Islamic Society of North America, which was the large, is the largest Muslim organization. Uh, I took office Labor Day, September, uh, two
4: thousand
3: and one. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm a board member. I'm going to wow. be helping, working on you know, mosques, Islamic centers, uh, etc. Well, you all know what happened. Uh, I very immediately, quickly became, um, just had so much of my time taken up with, with engaging with media. I thank God it was pu- a pure God's grace that the year before I was approached by a documentary film crew asked to um, be an advisor to a new documentary called "Muhammad: Legacy of, of a Prophet. Which is going to be showing on public television. Then they asked me if not only I'd be an advisor, but I would agree to be, you know, interviewed, a talking head for this. I spent five days uh, with a cameraman who I think was, you know, according to Islamic law, actually, you know, is a blood brother or something. By the amount of intimacy, the intimate relationship uh, I had with uh, this camera uh, person, uh, 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 by the end, and what was really interesting was in the in the question and answer period. The director kept saying to me, "You know, more energy. Lean forward. Look at how this is showing." So I had all of this media training um, for this documentary that then, when suddenly I was put on the spot after September 11th, really came in handy. Um, and I too then was also very lucky that that the administration of Hartford Seminary considered uh, articulating. Um, uh, the reality of Muslims, Islam, Christian-Muslim relations to the American public to be a vital part of its mission uh, gave me relief from uh, different teaching and administration administrative responsibilities. Uh, counted that as part of my work plan, and um, and then I was you know I devoted a great deal of time, not only um, not only being interviewed and having those interviews being played but also uh, giving a lot of time to reporters and media who wanted background information. I always said to them, I, you don't have to quote me. Um, uh, I am happy to, to consider this just, you know, I'm your resource. Uh, if, you want to, if you don't understand something, you want some context, if I can help you, I will. I'll direct you to other resources. And it was like I was giving individual classes on Islamic history and theology and law to so many different reporters. And that that helped build up a lot of trust so that sometimes I could call them as well. Um, Two other things. One, I had to decide uh, what forms of public engagement I wasn't interested in. I just, my my personality does not suit the um, conflictual uh, talk show environment so for example Bill Maher his for his mm-hmm. initial talk show what was it called? Politically incorrect. Politically incorrect they kept calling me and asking me you know you have to come on the show you'd be so good in the show I said no I, I wouldn't be so good on the show <laughs> they said no you could do it I said I can do it but I grew up in a family with four brothers who I constantly argued with that way. And I, you know, I went to graduate school because uh, pointing fingers and yelling over each other is a form of communication I decided to abandon.
2: So, I, I mean, the people
3: who can do it, God bless them. You know, someone needs needs to go on that battlefield, but it wasn't for me. And I, and so, you know, you do need to know what is your voice and where you can contribute and, and where it's better that you, you leave it to someone else. Um, The other thing is I had to think a lot about was what my responsibility was to the community that I was considered a representative of. Um, I was being asked, you know, and and even if I was asked for my personal opinion, there really was was no separation. People considered to me to be a spokesperson for Islam, especially after I became elected president of the Islamic Society of North America. I had that institutional responsibility, but it wasn't. Most people didn't consider I was speaking just for the members. They considered I was speaking for Muslims. So I had to constantly play this kind of explain the diverse opinions, also um, be honest to my my own perspective. Um, and and I think one of the most difficult things was not always being. I, I mean, I was it was a very apologetic situation, constantly having to explain you know, answer, why don't Muslims, you know, denounce terrorism, or why are Muslims oppressive to women, um, you know, why can't Muslim women drive, even though I drove to the studio for the interview, so a lot of patience, a lot, I had just really exercise a lot of patience, but also answer in a way that was as, as authentic to myself, um, but also, make you know, making sure that I didn't speak for people who, who really are in a way that, that encompassed all of the reality of the Muslim community. I have to say, it's very, very difficult to escape those kind of uh, caricatures of what a Muslim woman is, and in a way, uh, but in in a way, perhaps, you need to leverage it, too, because it was so unexpected to have a Muslim woman who was president of this large Muslim organization. Um, at the same time, I mean, um it's very difficult because I know people like to talk to me because they were all so comfortable with me. A friend of mine who's a rabbi said, "said Well, people feel comfortable with you because you're this small white woman, right? Okay, so are you telling me that that they're afraid of of, of tall black men who were my you know my colleagues? Okay. And and to that extent, you know, I felt that even being aware of my own situ- situation and." The kind of privilege that I had as a white person, even though I was a Muslim, um, who had no accent, who didn't look intimidating—whatever that means—meant that I had to, con- I had to, as much as possible, as naturally as possible, raise that issue, yeah. and and say, you know, it may be that, um, and raise the issue of what it meant to be a person of uh, a Muslim as a person of color and a male, because people are very sympathetic to Muslim women, but very unsympathetic to Muslim men. So it's just a complex situation, and I, I, learned, I learned a lot on the spot.
0: I wanna ask, um, I, I want, want ask one doubled question. And the question is this. In five years, what do you see as your successful um, arc of your career? If you could have exactly your way around this topic of public engagement, where do you see yourself and describe it and then reflect just a bit on what steps the AAR might help you take or you might help help us take so that that, you can achieve that vision. Oh man! There'll be an essay due at the end of the class.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Go. Sure, Um, well, first and foremost, as one who's just completed a third year review, I hope to be tenured.
2: All right, right. yes.
1: And I'm working darn hard while I'm on leave right now Ah. to make sure that in addition to the great public work, uh, the I guess mutually exclusive academic work that I'm deeply invested in that intervenes maybe more exclusively in a particular field. I want to see that do well and invested in that on its own terms. Um, Second, I I hope that with this center um, that we're launching at, at Columbia that it will um, without attaching numbers that you know, sort of funders require you to say you're going to meet, that it will <laughs> play a role in helping facilitate uh, c- creating spaces and structures for more nuanced, generative, inclusive, equitable conversations around sexuality, both within black churches and the communities they serve, but also more broadly uh, as part of the American public landscape in which uh, they are a part of. Um, and then, th- what was the third one? A- I- AAR. Well, I think I've been very fortunate, actually, to serve uh, for the past couple years on the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion, uh, originally under Sean's leadership and with folks like uh, Eric Owens and others, um, where we're at, a, I think, an exciting moment of thinking through the role of that center in uh, not only in complicating representations of our varied traditions and communities, but complicating this stigma of what public work is, right? I think of my own work on this particular project and... There's probably a dozen publics of philanthropists, of, me, of funders, of colleagues, of pastors, of community leaders um, that don't show up in a media soundbite, right? So if, if in playing a part of uh, the committee as uh, we continue to seek to serve the AAR in thinking in more complicated ways, and then I guess more generally out of the particularities of, of my own project, what I'm, I'm really interested in thinking about is um, how to gather empirical evidence to, from which to make theoretical claims around the problem, problems and possibilities attached to those spaces where scholarship and activism or public engagement uh, take place, right? So we could complicate that stigma by actually documenting some of the work that's done there. So it's, uh, may produce other forms of knowledge that are, we should make stronger claims about their validity in the context of the academy. So those are, those are a few sort of concrete things.
2: Um, I have a really utopian wish list here, Laurie. Uh, That's
0: what I wanted to have.
2: <laughs> I mean, I have a three-and-a-half-year timer on me, and then I, I go back to academia at the end of the presidential term. Uh, in terms of my current work, I want a final status agreement to an Israel palestine Now, this is not up to me, not up to me please. I mean, but, but, I, but I'm on the margins of that. I, I want to be close to the people who do that. I want to see Iran abandon its nuclear aspirations and come back into the fold of international society. And uh, maybe most difficult of all, I want to see Syria start to be rebuilt and to recover. We've got 2 billion refugees, 5 million internally displaced people in Syria. It's probably the largest man-made humanitarian disaster in my lifetime. Uh, It's going to take generations to figure that out and it's going to take everybody around the globe. And then I want to write a book about it uh, in that next year and a half after I get done. Uh, but, but I'm much more interested in your, your second question. Uh, it has been my distinct honor to be a member of, of the Committee on the Public Understanding Religion for I think eight years, which is probably illegal. But uh, <laughs> yeah, how did I pull that off? Uh, and, and so, I mean, I've seen that an astonishing array of people serve on that. But right now, it's, we, they're the best personnel, I think, ever in, in my eight years affiliated with it. And I'm not on it, so that, that improved the quality. Uh, but but um, one of the th- very concrete things that I would like to see, and, and I'm looking at you, Eric, because this is your idea, uh, is that we do a public engagement training module at the AAR. Because you know, Ingrid, I'm just like you. When I, I did my first television, I mean, the, the crew were rolling their eyes like, "Oh, this guy can't shut up." There's a glare coming off his bald forehead, <laughs> and who who picked this guy, right? And I couldn't clear my throat in ten minutes, much less give him a thirty-second soundbite. And I remember I, I I spoke on a local TV station. 9 nine eleven was on Tuesday. I was in channel four studio representing the religious community. Thank you. uh, On a local but very popular talk show and I was terrified. And I was also horrible. Because I had never, I mean, I, when somebody asks you a question, you start thinking in paragraphs, and I have 18 points I want to make, and this, you can see the host going, no, 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 get him off here. So uh, it would have been extremely beneficial to me at that part of my career to have media people but also experienced scholars spend an hour with me here so I, I could learn. And you know the greatest insight I ever learned? Reporters are human beings. And I didn't. And, and you know, I, I did the. I did the. I did some really stupid TV appearances, and felt like I needed to take a shower when I got done. And I realized the combative. He said. He said. She said. He said. Uh, Is just not for me. Uh, I'm not good at it. I lose my temper. I turn even redder than I currently am. And it, so, but it took me a couple of really bad experiences to learn that that's not where I belong. So I think if we as an institution can share some of the wisdom and experience, I would have been better faster had I had some so so eric it 's on you, I think the committee on public understanding and religion really needs to provide some, some actual training here so when you come to the meeting, you can show up on, on Thursday or Friday, and we have and that should be ongoing. I think that should be a permanent feature of the AR here
3: here that 's my big a recommendation for the AR people need need training um, we need not just knowledge but we need training universities are starting to understand that about teaching as I say I didn't even have any teaching feedback um, now now most graduate programs are providing some teaching experience and feedback uh, but we also need that that speaking uh, those workshops uh, understand the context what are different genres what is it um, um, what is what do all those things mean the best public speaking training I had was an elementary school where every year we were required to do a research project and then do a speech um, and we had to every and and there was a speech contest and so first we did it for our class and then we got up in front of the whole school I remember this grade three, four, five, all the way th- until the end of grade 8 um, uh, having to do a little, and each year the research got more and the speech had to be a little bit longer. You know, at the beginning it was one minute, and then it, by grade eight it was probably, I don't know how many minutes. And uh, that was the best uh, training I ever had. Um, and I would say that that shows, I mean, it, it shows that I, I think in public education there, there's a problem with that. There isn't a lot of that. Um, uh, but the fact that I got nothing of that in university... At all wow. is, is astonishing. Um, so thank you, St. Mary's Elementary School, <laughs> for that. Um, the in in what what I'd like in five years. First of all, I've always wanted to make my job obsolete, so I can go back into the woods where I belong, <laughs> and really hope to hope to end up. Um, and I do that primarily through my students. So I do in my classes. I, I pay attention to how my students speak, even when they're answering a, a question in class. If I if I can't hear them well, if they're not articulate, if their voice is too low or too fast, or you know they're lacking confidence, I ask them to repeat themselves, and I I work with them in class, and I also make sure that they have opportunities for presentation. So I do that through teaching, so that I can, you know, as I keep getting requests for public speaking, I can say, oh, you can, I I can give them away to other people. Um, And also to, I also teach religious leaders so that they can also make that transition the other way, not be so um, apologetic or just uh, speak from within their own theological paradigm, but understand how to speak about their beliefs to other people. So it's a really important part of my teaching I dream, one of the things that I think is really important, and I don't know, I I wish the scholarly community could figure out a way to deal with it, is religion on the Internet. Mm. Um, Mm. I mean, the Google searches are are just horrendous. Um, As it is, the reality is the vast majority of human beings get their information about religion from the Internet from the first page of results of a Google search. Um, it's disastrous. I know that uh, there are many people who are working on Wikipedia pages, which is helpful. But um, as long as these search optimization uh, engines are working against us, um, they're coming up with just garbage. The first page. Uh, I think I think it's it's going to just creating huge obstacles for uh, for learning.
0: I want to leave time for questions, but I have one last one for myself. The AAR, in some sense, has taken political stands, and in some sense, not. Um, we may had a petitioner at Tariq Ramadan. Sorry, uh, uh, we, last year, took a position to um, make no money from any profit made on gun sales of any kind after the Newtown shooting. Um, we didn't make a public statement on that, maybe we should have. but. Hopefully you all know this. Should we play a more active role? We're 10,000 people strong. We have brilliant arguments from many different traditions. What role should the AAR play as a guild? Um, should we take stands? There, other ACLS organizations do. Some don't. What's your position as the main actors in the interface between the public and the American Academy of Religion?
3: Well, I don't think I, I mean, I haven't been as involved with AAR on committees, um, so I don't feel as qualified to speak about this. I would say that, of course, there are ethical obligations that are primary to the organization, which is the protection of academic freedom. Um, mm-hmm. This is an academic organization, so I think to the extent that that there are um, limits on academic freedom, uh, things like um, uh, you know, the invasion of privacy and all of our research and media being scrutinized, uh, classrooms being terrorized by uh, speech being inhibited in the classroom because of um, uh, surveillance and government interference. All of those things are primary to the mission of uh, an academic guild. So I would say that there's no doubt that those things should be um, scrutinized and prioritized. Beyond that, uh, uh, it's good to have um, an opportunity to discuss them and if a consensus can be reached, if there's a framework for consensus building, then go ahead, but I think there's at least enough uh, and more more than enough work to be done in terms of protecting uh, academic freedom and speech.
2: Uh, I, I would wholeheartedly say yes. Uh, I mean, I'm an ethicist and theologian by training, and I'm Irish, so it's hard to keep my mouth shut. Uh, but, but And, and, and I, I like Ingrid's intuition and statement there. That I think we th- there are some issues we're going to come to consensus on more quickly that maybe deal directly either with w- our own guild or the impact of our guild. So if we, we have a meeting with 10,000 people, what are we doing in that space, and how what impact are we having morally by our, our sheer presence here? And who are we advantaging and who might we be increasing the suffering because we, we've chosen this hotel in this city. And, and I like to – but then it gets murkier and harder because I, I don't uh, – we, we want to be inclusive in the sense that you, you can come to this guild independent of your own political leaning even though I think if you were to survey us, we, we would tilt one direction more than another, but but not not completely. We need to honor the diversity of, of the diversity of our political views. Uh, so I, I like the notion of setting up mechanisms for trying to reach consensus. And I know that's, that's hard, that's difficult. We don't see each other all the time. It can get cranky and clunky. But the alternative is, is to walk blindly pass the injustices of our society. And we of all people who many of us are deeply committed to to social justice and whatever form that, that comes to us, uh, we have to find ways to, to assess that. And we may, we may come to loggerheads, we may, we may find passions running deeply. But let's have the conversation and see rather than prejudge it and say no. Uh, having said that, I would love to see us as a, a formal statement, affirm the right and the desire for religion scholars to be publicly engaged. Uh, mm-hmm. Frankly, when I first landed on the committee in Public Understanding Religion, we had committee members who who said the answer to that's no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my response was, "Why are you on this committee? <laughs> Seriously." I mean, and, and, and so if we were going to debate the proposition, mm-hmm. uh, I thought the battle had been lost. Uh, I would like to see this as a learned society. Now, you know, if you want to stay in, in your study and do. Deep, deep research, and, and, and never—that's fine. No, no one should coerce you out of that. I've benefited from the genius of those people, but I think it would be nice if we had in our in our academic creed somewhere some explicit affirmation that yes, as a scholar, this can be central to our work, and we will support our brothers and sisters who do go this road. Uh, and I feel somewhat embarrassed that we don't have that. You know, at least I haven't been able to find in our academic creed, and, and I actually read these long voluminous things we write, uh, that ought to be more prominently uh, affirmed as, as a guild, uh, but that avoids your, your question. But I do think it may help us get to that question if we can point to that and say we actually do have as a guild a commitment to, to public engagement.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I th- sort of uh, in line with m- much of what's been said Uh, And and perhaps in ways that uh, reflects my own location, again, as untenured. I have a couple of voices in my head of uh, administrators who clarified even as they were excited and the conditions for the arrival of grant funds around the work I do, being that they meet certain non-discriminatory, non-discrimination clauses uh, that we don't do advocacy, right, right? and uh, and I'm in line with that, right? That's why I I am uh, in part where my institutional location is in the academy. Um, So I no more want the stigma to be attached to those who do the disinterested work than I I want to remove that stigma uh, from those who are primarily committed to speaking to public audiences. And then more specifically as it pertains to my field, by reluctance to say uh, whatever the deliberative processes would be to arrive at a collective issue that we take a stand on as a a body, is the way in which, particularly in the study of African American religion, a politics that emerges out of race in the 20th century, have often overdetermined and obscured, and led the field to be complicit in a particular performance of a prescriptive Afro-Protestantism mm-hmm. that obscures as much, mm-hmm. even if it's in the interest of racial solidarity and civil rights gains. Right. So, um, all the recent debates about the Black Church uh, and there being no such a thing, or the Black Church being dead. Uh, are as much about the politics of the field and wanting to expand the questions and the categories and the terms in the field as they are about uh, recognizing the variety of religious traditions that animate African American communities. Um, and then finally, I guess, as a way of thinking about those collective de- relation, deliberations, I'm also a member of the American Studies Association, which is right meeting in D.C. right now. Um, and they have, I, at least as I understand it, attempted to think more proactively about the relationship of scholarship and activism. I think their theme this year is debt. Um, Obviously a very, point, but I don't know that that's led to the advocacy on behalf of a particular issue or uh, how their form of Wall Street takes, critique of Wall Street takes shape. Um, But I think that's one example of, uh, that has been um, a site of energy and inspiration for me. Okay,
0: with our remaining, I see people are already on their feet, good for you. Um, yes, go ahead.
4: Hi, I'm Barbara McGraw, uh,
0: professor of social
4: ethics law and public life at St. Mary's College of California and director of the Center for Engaged Religious Pluralism. And I'm also a, a member of the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion. And in terms of the question of what AAR could do, I'm really glad that my colleague, Joseph, raised the issue of the many publics. So. While I think it's a great idea for AAR to have media training, and I think that is definitely a piece we ought to have in the way that you all talked about, I also think we ought to have um, some training around strategic thinking, goal setting, and planning, which maybe comes out of some other fields. Because some engagement with the public is not not just speaking to the media, but it's also seeing a goal and a plan and something that is a long, hard slog over many years. And so I would like to see the Guild also have that kind of uh, training as well. And I wondered what you all thought of that.
2: Well, I would agree with that. I mean, the training I'm speaking about, is not just media training. I mean, I, I you know, living in Washington, D.C., everybody's wanting to launch a movement, right? Uh, I mean, everybody has their movement, but nobody thinks about, well, what well, how do you do that? What, what's involved in movement? Uh, so, uh, absolutely. And if you're teaching, I mean, I, I did my undergraduate work at Abilene Christian University in the middle of you know West Texas. There weren't many New York Times reporters within within ear, earshot of that. But you can public, you can engage many publics in Abilene, Texas. Uh, so I think it's being contextual. But I, I, I absolutely take your your point about we need to be. Uh, wiser, in a sense, uh, of how to have a public presence and, and there are just, I think, innumerable avenues. But I, I do think I would have been more effective if I had some early training about how to get from point A to point B.
1: And, I mean, we could, look to the work, uh, which Barbara did not mention, which she leads at the A.R. around prison, training prison chaplains on questions of religious pluralism. Right. So, I mean, there are models, even as we think about other sort of, how to facilitate connections to other sectors and other institutions. Uh, the model that AAR has developed, I guess over a decade or so, if that, if that's right, around training prison chaplains is...
5: Green I'm an ethicist and I'm also a scholar who at times is considered going into government service and I do hmm. consider it service uh, in fact I had an interview at the State Department last year um, but a couple of years ago I had the opportunity at an, af- an academic conference in New York to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge with a social scientist who had been working in Don Rumsfeld's Defense Department and in the course of the, the uh, conference he expressed some ethical qualms about it so While walking across the bridge, I couldn't resist, and I said, so you you worked in Don Rumsfeld's defense department, how was that? And we got into the discussion, and he gave me an example of of a time when he Faced an ethical quandary that he felt justified his job and he had written a memo on a particular topic that he felt was being misinterpreted and in a way that could lead to considerable loss of civilian life on the ground in Afghanistan. And echoing what Professor Casey said, he said, you know, I did it to save lives. I wanted Mm -hmm. to intervene and inform these government officials, officials so that they would understand. But at times I thought, well, now what if I did that? What if I went to work for the Defense Department or Homeland Security or the NSA? You know, would I, be, would I have to revoke uh, my membership at the AAR? I mean, how far could, could we possibly go in trying to inform government officials?
2: Wow.
0: You never have to revoke your membership
2: in the end. <laughs> Thank you. I l- let the record show that uh, the president's. Well, I, obviously, you, you have to make personal decisions about where your thresholds are. I mean, it's a big complicated government. No, nobody, nobody endorses everything the federal government does, right? Uh, it, it, somebody said to me, even in, in members of, of, of specific faiths, like Christians don't believe it all, all the time, if we're honest, right? And I won't speak for any other, other faith groups of which I'm, I'm not a part. Uh, and you you always have the option of quitting, you know. You, but I think part of it is knowing where your boundaries are and where your thresholds are. And if you're clear about that, uh, that that empowers you to to look other people in the eyes and say, you know, I, I can't I can't I can't participate in this. I, I'm going to have to separate myself. So being clear-eyed uh, instead of starry-eyed uh, about going into the government. But and, it, and it's true. Uh, but the same is true about being in the in, in the uh, academic Absolutely. guild. Absolutely. You know, uh, wow, what kind of nonsense have I seen in the academic guild in the last 20 years? You know, so, uh, but I mean, I don't, don't want to berate that, but 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 still. But, so there, there are no morally pure, innocent positions from which Absolutely. to live a human life. Absolutely. But, but I, I will say... Uh, some governments are, are more vexing to your moral soul than others, I, I will grant that point. But I think being clear uh, in your own mind about where those boundaries are will help you make a decision, should I join or should I separate myself? But, but, and, and that's an ongoing calculation, I think, that every, every person of any kind of moral fiber wrestles with every day.
0: We assign them copies of Exit Voice and Loyalty, Hirschman Buck, before you go in further, Any other reflections on that question?
3: I mean, I, I didn't. I've never worked for government, but I've been on so many government, you know, advisory panels. I, I remember very clearly the day I came into the Justice Department, um, and uh, talking to the then Attorney General. Um, and it was clear that there was torture going on um, in mm-hmm. the U.S. government, and. Uh, All of us, I think, who were there were aware that we were trying to be appropriated, that our consent was, that we were trying, that there were attempts to use us as uh, sort of models of, or proof that America wasn't at war with Islam. And see, here are these American Muslims, and they're coming into the government offices. I think we all knew that. At the same time, we also thought, is there any way we can prevent greater harm? And that was really the bottom the bottom line and maybe all we could do in that in that time. Like we really didn't have many illusions that we're actually going to do much good, but we might be able to avert some greater harm. But it was, I mean, it was very difficult and you you never really know. I mean, still you can continually be appropriated for another purpose, but I also agree that um, uh, academia constantly is as well. It's not a, a neutral um, uh, environment, um, you know, also used um, instrumentalized. Um, so whether you actually take a position in the government or you simply sit on one of these advisory councils or come in to do some consulting, um, it's always very difficult to really understand what's going on And that's why you have to do your due diligence
0: and pray, let me say. Yes, (laughs) exactly, right. As Manuel Levinas says, we all live in the cities of refuge, Mm -hmm. wrong side of the Jordan yet. Um, I'm going to take both Warren's question and my colleague's question here so that you both get a chance to speak out. So why don't you go first? Thank you. Um, Jane Ellen Nickel.
5: I'm at Allegheny College. Um, We are just opening a new center called The Gateway where we're bringing together Um, global engagement, or civic engagement, globalization, and diversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I teach in religious studies, but I'm also the chaplain. So I will relate to that center to make sure that we keep religious diversity part of that conversation. Um, So I would just ask for your all's ideas and suggestions as we're um, bringing these areas together about how do we both, uh, the the center will include both curricular and co-curricular offices. So how do we, both inside the classroom and, and, and maybe even more so, Uh, since I'll be responsible for making sure that religious diversity is part of that conversation. Uh, Make sure that as we're trying to um, work with students to um, create globally engaged citizens, make sure that religious diversity and religious uh, awareness is part of their development. So, uh, suggestions and ideas would be helpful. Okay,
0: that's the first question and
5: more.
6: Oh, okay. Um, So first of all, I just wanted to say to the panel, um, thank you for the presentation. Thank you for your work and your leadership. Um, You show us the way to do this work, and um, I'm sure we're all very grateful. Um, And I also want to uh, affirm what Sean Casey said, that the AAR should be consistently looking for ways to uh, support and encourage our members to be engaged with the public in in these ways. To that end, however, I thought I would just read the first and last line of the American Academy of Religion mission um, so that we can see that this is not something that's new to us but is at the core of who we are. And so I have my handy dandy phone here. Um, This is the opening line. In a world where religion plays so central a role in social, political, and economic events, as well as in the lives of communities and individuals, there is a critical need for ongoing reflection upon and understanding of religious traditions, issues, questions, and values. Thereby, I think, setting the context for what it is we do intellectually, both in our scholarly work, but also the point of it. And then, if you go to the final line, if this thing will let me do it, Within the context, within a context of free, free inquiry and critical examination, the Academy welcomes all disciplined reflection on religion, both from within and outside communities of belief and practice, and seeks to understand. Uh, sorry, seeks to enhance its broad public understanding. That's who we are. So, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Any final words?
2: I, I would just say, in, in your center. Mine your local resources. I mean, to me, it would be tragic. I mean, the globalization, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. But I think that the sort of untold story about religious diversity in America, it's not just the two coasts. I mean, I'm from Kentucky. Mayfield, Kentucky, for goodness sake. Uh, has a Somali community that's building a mosque and struggling. So the religious diversity in what, we, what some of my colleagues on the East Coast say is the flyover states is actually far more textured and rich. So, so I would say keep a local gaze as well for the religious diversity that's right there in your own zip code. To me, that's a much more interesting story that, that's being missed today, and, and you're in a, in a great position. Because my hunch is where you live is increasingly plural, uh, religiously and there may be great resources close at hand uh, it would be tragic if your students don't get a, a, a glimpse of that.
1: And Not so much from this platform but from being a, a director of undergraduate studies I would imagine in addition to the students re- representing that diversity they have a host of questions that could set the agenda out the box in terms of what the, you know they want to know in, about different traditions. And, um,
3: that's good. Uh, I just wanted to say something about the AAR and uh, public engagement. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that the statement begins in a world where, so I say that we need the guy who does the voiceovers for the movie trailer do a In a D7, world where. Right, as soon as you click on the AAR page, you have that deep voice saying, in a world where, and then
0: we will get that, exactly, exactly.
2: That's hilarious. I want
0: you all to join me in congratulating this great and intrepid panel yeah. for thank all their work, you. thank you. Thank you.